turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4, if you would. If you're using the Bible in front of you, it's page 694 in those. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, you can have that pew Bible in front of you in the chairs. That is, uh, you're welcome to have that and take that home and read that. And if you have somebody in your life that you know needs a copy of God's Word, please take that as well and give that to them um, because it is more useful in their hands where it's going to be read than it is sitting on the chairs in front of us. We want you to remind you that as we preach from God's Word every Sunday, it is not our ideas and our thoughts, but it is God's Word. And so we want you to have a copy of it, certainly to be reading it with us, alongside with us, and it'll be up on the screen uh, as well. We're going to read in a moment from Daniel chapter 4. Verses 19 through 17. Before we do that, a question for you. Have you ever had a time in your life where you were being afforded a warning by God, by some means of grace, and you decided that you were not going to listen to it? Did God ever warn you through somebody, through His Word, through the Holy Spirit, and you said, I'm not going to do that, or I'm going to do my, it my way? I have an example for you, obviously, because there's lots of those in my life, and you probably have some as well. There's a time when I was a young teenager where you felt like invincible on the road driving, right? You know that feeling, especially the guys. And uh, my, my dad, well, he let me use his pickup truck oftentimes to drive and do chores and what, whatever. And uh, our farm where we did chores, the one farm was just a kilometer down the road, so it was the wintertime. There was snow on the ground one day. Um, and I remember, I know in the back of my mind telling this story, I know dad would have said, our, my dri- our driveway used to be like a circle, right? So you'd kind of go, you could go straight in one side and our house is here, and then you do the circle. The other house was just a rental house that somebody lived in, and so there was a loop. But we lived out in the country, so a lot of snow built up on that loop. And um, I was doing chores one night, and I was coming home, and I, I know in the back of my head, dad's told me not to take that because we don't plow that row. We only plow the one that we use regularly. We don't plow the other one. But I thought, I'm going to try that. I'm going to see what's in there. I, know, I knew that it's probably not a wise idea, but uh, it didn't seem like there's a lot of snow. And so as I was coming home, I took the second laneway to come back in, and I was going to see how much snow I could get through in Dad's little full, uh, Chevy pickup truck. And uh, I remember coming down that, and then you get to the bend where the trees are, and sure enough, two feet of snow is piled up, but it's too late, so you got to floor it, right? you got to try to get through it. So I tried to, and I get to the bend, and I'm, and I'm committed at this point, so I'm going, and uh, I got stuck halfway through, and I could see the house, and it was cold, and it was a winter's night, and what I had to do was I got myself stuck, I couldn't get myself out, and I had to walk through the snow, back to the house, and I had to come to Dad and say, Dad, I took the other laneway, and I'm stuck. And of course, I don't remember his response, but I'm sure he said, why did you do that? You know, I've told you that before, or you at least know that that's not a plowed area, and I did it anyways, and her, certainly he came over, and I, I don't remember how we got it out, but we did get the truck out. But a time where God, where God had certainly, where God has warned you, and you've decided your way is better, to come to find out that it wasn't. That's a small example of that, but have you ever had a similar experience in your life before of that? That is somewhat what we see in Daniel chapter 4 when we speak of repentance. Nebuchadnezzar was certainly his sin was brought before him in this dream, and we're going to see how he uh, responds, and we're going to see Daniel 
as he responds to him, as he interprets the dream for him this morning. And so I would like us to read then Daniel 4, verse 19 together, and I'm going to read the whole of our passage this morning, and we'll see what God has for us as we continue. Let's start in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew up and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of heaven lived. It is you, O king." who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached to heavens, to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the, sink, the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts, beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 24, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High God, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off from your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is the word of the Lord. I'll do that later. What do we see in Daniel chapter 2? What do we come to in Daniel 4? Nebuchadnezzar had a vision. He doesn't go to his wise men. He goes to Daniel. And in our passage, Daniel interprets it for him. And repentance is what Daniel brings to him in verse 27. Repentance. And so our first point is a burden for the unrepentant. It's fascinating as you read the beginning and end of this particular section of Daniel. Look at Daniel's response to the, and his reaction rather to the dream. What does the text say? Daniel was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. Have you ever been troubled by news that you have received? You've received news before that was troubling to you. Whether that's a family member was diagnosed with something maybe or traumatic news about something that happened to a loved one or something that's going on around you. Deeply troubled by news you've received. And look at what the king says to Daniel. The king comforts Daniel. He says, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. I think it points to Daniel, sorry, to Nebuchadnezzar's pride in the fact that he didn't see what this dream actually meant and he didn't understand it. He might have responded differently had he had the interpretation first. But the king is the one who comforts Daniel. The king is the one who went to Daniel to receive comfort because he wanted an interpretation for the dream. It was Daniel's job to be there for him. 
And yet the king is the one comforting Daniel because he's distressed at what he hears and what he sees and in the interpretation of the dream that he needs to give to King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't see his sin or the way that he's living as that big of a deal. He's at peace with his sin. And Daniel is shocked at the coming judgment that God has for the king. And he's shocked that he would be an instrument that God was going to use to speak repentance to the king. Why me? And so there's two things we see in the burden for the unrepentant in verse 19 and 27. The first thing is Daniel's faithfulness to Nebuchadnezzar, his earthly king. Daniel wished that the, interpretation, the terp, interpretation rather of the dream would be for the king's enemies. Fascinating. Probably Daniel wasn't, maybe Nebuchadnezzar wasn't his favorite king, but Daniel understood that he was my king, my earthly king. And what does Daniel wish of the dream? He wishes that it was for the king's enemies. Take a minute to think about that. Why does Daniel not wish ill upon Nebuchadnezzar? If you and I receive this and we're working under a pagan king who we wished would cease to exist or at least cease to be in power, you would think that we would be, our response would be the very opposite of that. We would be excited, not excited to tell him maybe, but excited like secretly that God has a plan of judgment for this unworthy, unholy person. Why does Daniel not wish ill upon Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel actually cares about Nebuchadnezzar. Why? When we get to Daniel chapter 5, we're going to read this about Nebuchadnezzar. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, sorry, your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he, would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. This was the king, Nebuchadnezzar. This is the king to whom Daniel feels a burden for and feels bad for. Burden that he has to tell him of judgment that's coming to him. Daniel does not wish ill upon this pagan king. And for you and me, it's our ugly pride that makes us wish that leaders in our lives would fail. That they would stumble and that they would fall. Who's never thought that before? Who's never thought, wouldn't it be nice if so-and-so fell from power, from leadership? I don't like the way that they lead. And this happens in the church. This happens outside of the church in both, in both areas. It's not just outside the church that we're speaking, but also inside the church. That pastor or that elder or that person on the praise team or whatever it is, where we've wished somebody else's demise. It's our pride where we hope that that person trips up somewhere along the way because they don't deserve to be where they are. Where is that humble attitude that Daniel brings to Nebuchadnezzar that he displays? The humble attitude that says with Jesus in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That should be our attitude towards everybody. If you spoke well of your enemies and prayed for them, your heart would certainly change. Your heart posture towards them would change. From one of pride to one of humility. If you prayed for your enemies and for those that you struggled with, maybe your affections 
would change from wanting ill for them and not glorifying their judgment, but maybe actually celebrate or at least certainly be a blessing to them where you could pray for them. A great tell as to where your and my heart is towards somebody is if we're excited about their demise. That tells you what your heart posture is towards somebody. If they fell, what would you think of that? Daniel set aside an enormous grudge, I suppose, with Nebuchadnezzar to tell him the truth. Because he has to go to the king and tell him that this is you. This is you that's going to be judged. This is you that's going to, be, that's going to leave civilization, I suppose, or at least being a king for seven periods of time, and you're going to live as an animal. That's you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel has to share that. But he was faithful to the king as a servant of the king, but he's also faithful to God, the second thing. We see that in verse 27 at the end of our passage. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. And he goes on as we're going to come back to that part of the passage. Daniel was willing to speak the truth no matter what it was going to cost him, no matter how difficult the news was. He didn't shy away from telling the truth. Have you ever had to share bad news with somebody? You can, you can associate with Daniel in that sense. You had to share bad news with somebody. It's news that you didn't want to share. You know what that feels like, right? When you have children, there are times where you have to discipline them and you don't feel like disciplining them. But your perspective and your desire to be committed to the long game of helping your kids build, grow in their character means you have to say no to some things that you don't want to say no to. And that's hard to do. Daniel was faithful to God. How hard is it for us to share the gospel with friends and families and neighbors? How hard is it for us to talk about God to family and friends and neighbors that don't know Him? We know the truth. We know the truth about the reality for those who do not place their faith in Christ. We know that they need Christ, but we're scared. We don't know what to say. We don't know how they're going to respond to us. We need to be eager and fearful to share the truth, especially the truth of the gospel with other people. A, a love burden to speak the hard word of God and yet an honoring obedience to do it anyways because we know what God has said, because we know what God has asked us, and because we know the reality of a life without God. So Nebuchadnezzar was given a friend, a friend who would speak into his life and share that truth. No matter how hard it was going to be, he was willing to share it. Daniel is the kindness of God towards Nebuchadnezzar, bringing truth and clarity to the both to his life and through life, rather, through the dream and through its interpretation. So we see a burden for the unrepentant in Daniel's heart. The second thing we see then is the cause for repentance. What does it say in verse 17 and verse 25 and throughout our passage and the dream? Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's the cause for repentance in Nebuchadnezzar's life pride. Nebuchadnezzar's pride was the reason for God's pronounced judgment. And what does the Bible say about pride? God hates pride. Pride is a feeling in us of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from our achievements, right? It's a, 
It's something where, where we can't admit our weaknesses, where we see ourselves as better than we actually are. That's pride. And Proverbs 3.34 says this, and it's quoted later in Peter and also in James, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. God will smash your pride. That's what he's doing to Nebuchadnezzar through this dream. Pride and arrogance, as Jeff shared with us a number of weeks ago, arrogance has no place in the life of a believer. Pride is the same. It does not have a place in the life of a believer. We don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast in our accomplishments. Because we know that without God, what we have is not possible. We have absolutely nothing without Him. Everything that we have is because of His rich mercy and His rich grace towards us. And Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn that. He needed to learn that God, the Most High, rules and He gives kingdoms to men as He pleases. God is supreme. Yahweh is in control. Yahweh is sovereign. And Nebuchadnezzar needed to see that. Question is, when we look at this example, do you have people in your life that can remind you that you are only a man, a human? We are at the center of our universe, typically. Nobody tells us when we're right or wrong. And if they do, watch out, right? Because I'm going to have a bad attitude or I'm going to start to dislike you, right? Because you point out flaws in me. Nebuchadnezzar had somebody in Daniel to tell him this. And it's something that the Roman slaves did for the generals that came back. Roman slaves were appointed to do this when a victorious general would come back from a battle or from victory, and they were victorious. When they returned to Rome and they were honored with triumph, the slave would remind them, you are only a man. Do you have somebody in your life that can remind you of that? That you're only a man. God offered to Nebuchadnezzar a ray of hope. We saw the cause for repentance and we see the hope in repentance. And this makes the bulk of the dream and the interpretation of the dream. There is hope in repentance. This is not just a dream of judgment, but as you read it, be encouraged, Nebuchadnezzar. And certainly for us as we read it. It's interesting in verse 6 what it says, And so it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. The king was going to receive back his kingdom. God wasn't destroying the king and taking away everything from him. And yet a promise is given. And it gives us a vision to see how God works. He's going to shatter our pride, but it doesn't mean he's going to destroy us and take everything away from us necessarily. Yes, God opposes, opposes the proud, and he will humble us, but there's hope. And there's hope for us because of the gospel. There's two people in this world, those that have hope and those who don't. Those who listen to warnings and those who do not. And that's the difference between having hope and not having hope. And so the first thing we see then in the hope of repentance is that God is gracious. If grace is giving us giving of the things that we do not deserve, then God showed grace to Nebuchadnezzar by promising to give him back his kingdom. In his pride and his arrogance, he did not deserve it. He did not deserve to have it back. He did not deserve to have it in the first place. And the same reigns true of us in many ways. 
We not, do not deserve to have the things that we have. And yet God, he teaches us lessons by allowing us to continue to have those. Why? Because he's gracious. God is patient with us. Romans 5 verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What do we deserve? We deserve hell, every single one of us. What does God give to those who turn in faith and repentance towards him and confess their sin and leave that and follow him in faith? What does God offer? Salvation, the free gift. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's grace. You know how hard it is to love somebody who hates you? That's our story. We were enemies of God. We were sinners when Christ died for us. We were not friends of Jesus when Christ died for us. And yet He did it. So you and I don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve, rather, eternal life. But it's offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ by His Son and through Jesus' perfect life lived for us and sacrificed on the cross for us. Rarely does God actually give us what we deserve. And for that, we should be thankful for God's grace. And the second thing we see, though, is that God is kind. In Romans 2, verse 4, there's a verse for us that helps us, and this is what we're seeing in the text as well. Romans 2, verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is patient and God is kind in his handling with us. And we're grateful to God for that. He was patient and he was kind in his handling of Nebuchadnezzar. And what is God's patience supposed to drive us to, according to Romans 2? Repentance. Knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. God has every right to give us what we deserve. To give us the wrath of our sins. His wrath on our sins. And the fact that He doesn't make us experience the full weight of all the consequences of our sin is God's grace and kindness and patience towards us. And that's huge. Because every single sin that was ever committed was, is rather against the blood of Christ. And for us as believers... Every single sin that you and I commit is against the blood of Christ after we've been saved. And yet God is kind to us and He's gracious to us. And so we see God's patience, His ongoing consistent love that leads us to repentance. And the final thing then in the hope of, in repentance is that God prunes. God's pruning Nebuchadnezzar in a way that we see it in the text, I think it, uh, the analogy comes up two times in the dream. The first in verse 26, and I think the other one we see in verse 23. Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and on it goes. All that was left of Nebuchadnezzar was the stump and roots of his kingdom for him to come back to later. And what does God say is coming back? He's going to give back his kingdom. 
John 15, verse 1 and 2, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. What is God doing in Nebuchadnezzar's life? He's cutting off the bad so that new can grow. There's many illustrations we could use of pruning. One, particularly for myself, when we moved into our house home two years ago here in PEI, there was a spirea hedge, and that thing was like 10 feet wide, and I don't know, but I knew when I got there, Bailey had shared with me that spirea hedges are not supposed to be that wide. So uh, if you ever saw us that first year, you would have seen us out in November and December, because we moved here in the first of November, you would have seen me out there with hedge clippers cutting back that hedge, because Bailey's like, this has got to go now, because in the spring it's just going to be a mess. So we were out there in the freezing cold, and I was just hacking off the spirea hedge, just hacking it off. And I think we took it down to maybe like a foot by foot square, and that was all it was. Lots was there, and you know what I had to do? I had to go and dig up the dirt that where the spirea had grown, and I had to replant new seed, because this had just gotten so overgrown. The analogy, when we let sin continue in our lives, pruning can either be a big painful thing or it can be something that you do regularly so that you don't have to have so much pain right when you cut it all back at once right if you prune things regularly and properly you shouldn't have to do that and we learned our lesson although I didn't I wasn't the one that let the hedge grow but I would have liked to confront the person that did but that's fine for another time there are times when pruning is harsh in our lives right things that we hold on to tight and for a long time, and it hurts when God cuts them away. And there's hope and repentance because of what that pruning is meant to lead to. The purpose of God's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar was not just because God was angry with him. The purpose of it was so that Nebuchadnezzar will be brought into a right spiritual relationship with God. That's why God allows those things in our lives. That's why God prunes in our lives. It's so that we would have a proper relationship with him and towards him. That we would see, Nebuchadnezzar, that you would see God the Most High as the one who is sovereign over everything that you think you're sovereign over. So this wasn't a final judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. This was a temporary judgment meant to bring Nebuchadnezzar to repentance and to seeing God for who he really was. And isn't that why God does that in our lives? So the gospel then is on full display when you and I repent of our sins and turn away from our sins. Not just once into salvation, but every other time after that. It's an opportunity to, to display the gospel. That Jesus Christ purchased our redemption at the cross. And so we recognize our sin, we confess it, and we turn to it because of the hope that we find when we repent. And that's why we read Proverbs 28 verse 13 in our liturgy this morning. So then finally we come to the call to repentance in verse 27. What do we do with this dream? To Daniel it was obvious. Nebuchadnezzar, let my counsel be wise to you. You need to stop sinning. Put off your sin. It's dangerous then for us to put off repentance. To leave it. Why? Because sin is a poison. The longer you go in your sin, the harder it's going to be to do the work of repentance. Not just 
repentance for salvation, but repentance after you've come to Christ and confessed those sins. The longer you stay in those, the harder it is to repent of those things and to turn from those things. And so we keep short accounts of our sin with God. Compare the roots of a tree to the roots of dandelion. If anybody had a stump that fell from Fiona two years ago, anybody try to dig out those roots? Yeah, I recommend you let them sit for a few years and rot. But uh, we tr- we, there was one rotting stump in our yard this past summer, and uh, we tried to dig it out, and it was fairly easy because it was pretty rotten. But the root system was fairly robust to dig out. Um, and uh, so we got to the stump, and I was using my hatchet to get through some things. I started digging around it. At one point, because it was stubborn, I got my car jack. I dug a hole around. I got the car jack in there. That's it. it works. It's kind of weird. It looks funny, but we got it. A lot of sweat and tears, and we did get the stump out. But have you ever tried pulling out a dandelion? Yeah, you know how much easier that is, right, than pulling out a stump. And that'll work. I know there's a lot of dandelions, but still, it's easier than trying to pull a stump and a tree and all its roots out. You see the difference, and to to you, it's obvious, of course, the root system on a dandelion and and trees are, are, are totally different. And yet, that seems to be the case with the way that we see our sin. Why is it not that obvious with our sin? Sin hinders and it clogs our relationship with God. It it hinders our love and our desire for God because we're too busy serving ourselves. And what does Daniel say to Nebuchadnezzar? Get rid of it. Stop sinning. It's better for you to mortify one sin in the flesh than it is to understand all mysteries. You know what I mean by that? It's great that you know things about the Bible. It's great. But we need to mortify our sin. We need to get rid of our sin. We need to make war on our sin. And that takes us humbling ourselves because of our pride. But what is knowledge without repentance? Because every sin that you and I commit after the cross and after salvation, is a sin against the blood of Jesus, right? He died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. And yet when you and I choose to sin, because we do it because we like it, what does that say about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us? What does it say about the sacrifice when I don't take seriously what Jesus died for? What does it say about my heart? What is knowledge without repentance? Do we presume, as Nebuchadnezzar may have, that God's just going to always put up with our sin and our affronts and our offenses against Him? Will He endure, how long, should I say, will God endure to have His glory trampled on and abused? That's why Jesus died. God's patience and His forbearance and His grace with us is immeasurable. And so repentance can prevent eternal ruin, but it can also prevent temporary judgment. And certainly that was the case in Daniel here when he shares with Nebuchadnezzar. So we don't have final judgment, we have a temporary judgment. So what is repentance then? There's a small little book called The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. I would highly encourage anybody to get your hands on that and read it. It's a great little book. Every single sentence, there's so much in it. 
And he lays out six steps for repentance in his book. The first one being the sight of sin. You have to start by seeing your sin. Second thing you have to do is you have to have sorrow for your sin. Then you confess it. You have shame for your sin, which turns to hatred for sin, which finally leads to turning from sin, which is the definition of repentance, turning from our sin, doing a 180. So repentance is not remorse or guilt for sin. That's not repentance. Feeling bad because you didn't like the consequences of your sin is not repentance. Repentance is also not a resolution against sin because you may just be resolving to not sin because you didn't like the consequences of it. If that's why you choose not to sin, that's not repentance. Right? Repentance is sorrow, confession, shame, hatred. As long as you love your sin more than Jesus, you're not going to turn away from it. An analogy that was used is repentance is like a mountain, not a pothole. I know some potholes out on the East Coast you can see coming from a mile away, but you can see mountains coming from further. But there's other potholes that you don't see and you get up to them and then you realize it's too late and I'm going to hit this and I'm going to lose, you know, half of my car in this pothole, right? Repentance is like a mountain. It's easily discernible if somebody's repentant for their sin. It's not something you need to look for and try to find. And so what do we see in this call to repentance that Daniel shares with Nebuchadnezzar? The first thing is breaking from your sins. Galatians 5, it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. In 1 John, it says, Nobody born of God makes a practice of sinning. You and I need that reminder today to take our sin seriously. Don't just take your neighbor's sin seriously, your spouse's sin seriously, even your kid's sin seriously. Take your sin seriously. The first step in breaking from sin is recognizing it in your life. You need to, sin must be seen rather as sorrowful. It must be seen to be wept over. And the problem is that our hearts are dull towards our sin. And Satan would love to keep us there. He's convinced us that as long as we avoid the big sins, everything else is okay. Those other ones are, are fine. Nobody, either nobody sees them or you'll be fine if you continue in those because they're not seen. They're private. The rest aren't that big a deal. Every single sin is a big deal. Jesus died for every single one of them. It'd be strange to live with somebody and to eat and to drink with that person and not to not know that person, right? If I didn't know some things about my spouse, but I've lived with her for seven years, that would be weird. You would find that odd. But that seems to be the case with our soul and our body sometimes. We don't actually know what's going on. Part of that's because of the wickedness and the, the deceitfulness of our heart, but we don't actually know what's going on in there. The wickedness, the sin that needs to be turned from. We don't see it. But we see it in others quite easily. That's why we're called Grace Baptist Church. Here are some commands that you and I break all the time. Leaving our first love, Revelation 2. Lack of good stewardship of what God has given us, Ephesians 5. God's given you time and resources and many other things. And we oftentimes don't handle our time or our money in a way that honors God. Unthankfulness to God, but rather wishing things were different. Who's done that? Worldliness from Romans 12, where we care more about the world than the things of God. Loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
I fail at that, Matthew 22. Loving your neighbor as yourself right after that. Doing all things with grumbling and complaining. Who hasn't done that? Being divisive in the church by gossiping about other people and talking about other people behind their backs. Putting your needs above other people's needs. Must I go on? So much for any pretensions about our holiness, right? We're not holy. Break from your sin, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar. And if God, by His grace, convicts you through the Holy Spirit, then listen. And maybe God will use His Holy Spirit. Maybe He'll use a friend. Maybe He'll use a pastor or a preacher or even something set up on stage. And this is a principle in the Bible called put on and put off, or rather put off, put on. And this is what Daniel says in 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off from your sins. Here's how you do that by practicing righteousness. You replace what you're breaking off by putting on something else. And in this case, Daniel says righteousness. And so that's our second point. Pursue righteousness. The king was not very good at this, as Daniel alludes to. When he says, by practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed. We read in Daniel 5 about what this king was like. Most likely he struggled in this area. He didn't show mercy to the oppressed, but he was oppressive himself. So what does that mean for us? Pursue righteousness. The one who steals needs to start giving instead of taking. The one who's divisive needs to start pursuing unity rather than continuing in being divisive. The one who gossips needs to stop talking bad about other people and start saying good things about those people and others. The one who's complaining needs to start being grateful and thankful. Pursue things that are right, godly, pure, and loving, according to 1 Timothy 6, actively seeking the fruits of the Spirit and practicing them by the grace of God and by the work of His Spirit in our lives. We can't do it apart from that. You would fail if you tried. And what does he say at the end in verse 27? That there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity, Nebuchadnezzar. This is not a promise. Daniel's not promising that God is going to bless you more if you listen. But this is the way that God works. Think of the times that God sent prophets to the different people in the Old Testament. One in specific, when God called Jonah to go to the Ninevites, and we know what, no, what Jonah did, and when Jonah eventually goes to the Ninevites and preaches judgment to them, they're given 40 days to repent. And what does the, the text say in Jonah? They repented, and God relented. He didn't judge them because they repented. God is patient with them. God is kind with them, and He is to us. It's a gift when God clearly makes known His Word to our hearts, as He did to Nebuchadnezzar, and gives us an opportunity to repent before having to feel the full weight of the consequences of our sin. And so as you and I, as we come to church and hear the Word preached, and we sing and we enjoy fellowship in our small groups, God speaks to us, and we ought to listen in those times. That's why we gather together. That's why we worship together, not just on our own. It may be through the preaching of the Word. It may be through no human means at all. It may be through the Holy Spirit as He speaks to us through the Scriptures and He points out our pride. It's a huge gift from God 
when he shows us those things before we have to face the judgment for those or the consequences of those things. And so what is it that God is trying to say to you about your future, about your pride? Let it not be said of us that repentance is difficult. Proverbs 28, verse 13, which we've read already this morning. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There's a promise there for us. When we repent of our sins, mercy's on the other side of that. And that is a great promise for us as believers. We can repent then because the gospel is on display when you and I repent, because there's grace and mercy on the other side of that when you and I repent and turn from our sin. Christ died so that repenting sinners could be saved. And we are so grateful to God for that. Let us pray this morning. God, we thank you so much for your mercy and your grace, God. And we thank you for this text in Daniel that serves to us as a reminder and a warning as it was to Nebuchadnezzar. We thank you so much for the way that you worked in Daniel's heart to be able to share this difficult news with Nebuchadnezzar, even though it was something that was not easy to do, God. And we can relate to that. We know that there are times where it is hard for us to share the gospel, to share the truth about who you are. And God, we ask for boldness and courage and love for those around us, a burden for the unrepentant to do that. But God, we are also reminded in this text through Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar that you offer warnings to us in your grace and kindness and mercy. God, you don't just judge us right away for the things that we do, the ways that we profane the cross by sinning, by choosing to sin. God, you are so gracious with us even after that. And we are thankful to you. We're undone by that, God, because we don't deserve it. And so, God, we thank you for that this morning, and we do ask that this reminder would help us to keep short, short accounts of our sin with you, God, that we would come to you with our little sins and our big sins, that you would, by your Spirit, would convict us and challenge us of our pride, of our impatience, of our lack of love, and all these other things, God, that it wouldn't just be the big things that we feel like we're right with you, but that it would be these little things as well, God that we might confess them to you daily and bring them before you daily, that we might find mercy at the cross, God. And so we thank you so much for that great reminder this morning. We ask that it would encourage us and bless us as we go. And we pray in your holy name. Amen.